my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your half-man, half-microwave, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode includes Demon Tech, Squid Love, and Kidnapping Abroad. Looks like we ran over some random road spikes and need to work at this creepy old kid's party place to pay for the repairs. We can talk about horror movies while we scrub toilets. Number 1, Manborg, 2011, directed by Steven Kostansky. A man confronts the evil Count Dracula after his brother is killed. The man is blasted to bits. Years later, the man comes back to life as Manborg, part man, part machine. Manborg ends up in prison with some resistance fighters. After learning about his abilities, Manborg is able to defeat Count Draculon and save one of the resistance fighters by sacrificing himself. Count Draculon and his subordinates are the killers. I loved Psycho Goreman, that's why I keep bringing it up. It's also the reason why I decided to hunt down other projects that Steven Kostansky and Astron 6 put together. Father's Day didn't wow me like I anticipated, but when Steven Kostansky showed up as the sole director of Manborg, optimism returned. Manborg is a fun movie about a soldier turned cyborg who ends up in the future that's run by the evil demon man who defeated him. It's loaded with fantastic practical effects like miniatures, in-camera gore, and crappy yet endearing demon masks. The humor is solid throughout. It wasn't one of the funniest movies of all time, but the karate character dubbing goof in Prisoner Demon's love for a human prisoner, it's never pushed too far, and the general wackiness of the action sequences really worked. If the humor worked and the practical effects were so fun, then why did I have a feeling in my stomach that I get when watching terrible movies? Manborg is a very creative movie in the way it was put together. Almost the entire movie is shot against a green screen. The craftsmanship is unique, and it's interesting to try and pick apart exactly how certain things were done. But, oh yeah, there's a big ol' but. It's such a large but that I had to phrase it that way. But... The Manborg viewing experience is an assault on your eyeballs. Just taking in what's happening on screen for the 60 minute runtime is draining. I knew that I liked the content of Manborg, but my eyes were screaming. They felt violated and dirty. They wanted a shower to cleanse them from the hodgepodge effect sludge that the viewing left as a 
figurative caked on layer over my retinas. You know those eyewash machines that were in the corner of your high school science classes? My eyeballs were begging for me to find one and fling my face, eyes wide open, into their watery cleansing jets. It's weird to have so much fun with the content of a movie only to despise the viewing experience due to the aesthetic. I know there must be other examples of this, a cartoon with art that's overly disgusting but filled with hilarious writing, but no further examples are coming to mind. I guess Ed, Ed, and Eddie is almost an example of a piece of media that's aesthetic almost ruins everything, but that cartoon isn't anywhere near as egregious as Manborg. It hurts to call Manborg an assault on the eyes because it's easy to see buckets of love were poured into creating it. So much heart and creativity. The problem lies with all of the different effects styles not meshing together harmoniously. The effects work as fun and unique as it is in Manborg is pure filthy chaos. Pure filthy chaos in a way that the movie isn't technically bad, it's just hard to watch. The easiest way to sum up my viewing experience with Manborg is that it was fun but draining. Do I recommend it? I think it's worth seeing because of what it is. Maybe the best way to watch it is in short spurts. Give your precious vision spheres generous time to process and rest during a viewing. At the end of Manborg, there was a trailer for Biocop. The Biocop trailer had much less CGI and was a nice change of pace for my eyes. The Biocop segment is fantastic and should be sought out even if you decide to skip Manborg. I also have to apologize, I'm sorry that I didn't pick up on Rich Evans' cameo in Psycho Goreman. He was fantastic as the human remains containing robot character. Number 2, Promising Young Woman 2020, directed by Emerald Fennell. Aye, it's ye favorite Captain Spoilerbeard. If ye don't wanna know what happens in Promising Young Woman, skip to 11 minutes 35 seconds. Thanks, SB. Last chance to dip. 3, 2, 1. A girl named Cassie gets revenge for her friend Nina, who took her own life after being sexually assaulted in college by a guy named Al. Cassie confronts people that made excuses for the crime, perpetrated the crime, or didn't help. Cassie starts dating Bo Burnham, an old college classmate. Al is getting married. Cassie comes into possession of a video of what happened to Nina that shows that Bo was in attendance. Cassie blackmails Bo for the location of Al's bachelor party. Cassie shows up under the guise of a stripper and is killed by Al while attempting to carve Nina's name on him. Al and his bro hide the body. Scheduled texts and mail go out which leads to Al being arrested at his wedding. Al is the killer. Promising young woman, which I'll shorthand to PYW, Carrie Mulligan is the standout actor. She captures the despair and rage of her character perfectly. I was informed that she was British before watching the movie, 
and would have never guessed based on her performance if she hadn't used the word spat when referring to spitting in Bo Burnham's coffee. Americans back me up. Saying spat is a British thing, right? Bo Burnham, whose character name is Ryan, just plays Bo Burnham. His character is distracting since everything he says comes off like he's delivering a joke for a stand-up routine. I thought Seth Cohen and McLovin were going to have a bit more screen time given the trailer, but practically their entire scenes are in it. The trailer definitely gives away way more of the movie than I'd like. Based on the trailer alone, you know where the movie is heading as soon as Bo brings up the fact that Al's getting married. It's easy to put two and two together and realize the nurse sequence shown in the trailer will happen during Al's bachelor party. Allison Brie and Chris Lowell also show up in PYW. I bring them up together since they were in GLOW. Chris Lowell plays Al, which at first seemed like a strange choice, given his comedic presence in GLOW. He comes off as more of a goofy frat bro than a completely hateable, vile villain, a la Billy Zane in Titanic. But upon further reflection, that seemed completely purposeful. Not all people that commit heinous crimes are going to scream that they would with the way they look. Most serial killers look like average Joes. PYW drives home the point that in reality, any seemingly normal, nice guy could be a predator. When Cassie is brought home by different men while acting drunk, she makes a mark in a journal. There appears to be at least three different colors, black, blue, and red. The meaning of the colors aren't explicitly stated, but it's possible to deduce the colors relate to different severities of attempted assault. The trailer did make it seem like a large portion of PYW would be spent having Cassie confront the men that try to take advantage of her when she's pretending to be drunk, but almost all of the Cassie luring in bad man content is shown in the trailer. In the trailer is a classical rendition of Toxic by Britney Spears. After seeing the trailer countless times, I began to hate that rendition, but as far as music in the movie goes, it's probably one of the better fitting songs. There are many other songs included in the soundtrack, and most don't fit what's going on and end up being obnoxious. A more subtle score with less in-your-face music would have been ideal, but even though a lot of the music was ill-fitting, it didn't ruin the overall experience. One thing that really set PYW apart from other revenge movies is the fact that Cassie gave most of the characters a chance to repent for what they did or didn't do. As the movie goes on, it looks like no one is going to have a change of heart without Cassie intervening until, oh my god, it's Alfred Molina. It was nice to see at least one character, a lawyer, actually feel guilt over his involvement. Promising Young Woman is a refreshing new take on a hard-to-watch genre. Watching Cassie take down people that have done wrong will have you on the edge of your seat. Consider checking it out. Number 3, Willy's Wonderland, 2021, directed by Kevin Lewis. In order to pay for some auto repairs, Nicolas Cage works an overnight shift at Willy's Wonderland as a janitor. 
animatronics possessed by serial killers, and the townspeople that enabled them are the killers. Willy's Wonderland, aka Five Nights at Freddy's with Nick Cage, aka Nicolas Cage Janitor, is a movie with a solid premise. Nick Cage ends up in a building filled with bloodthirsty animatronics. The premise alone is going to bring people in. Nick Cage doesn't speak for the entire movie. He'll give a grunt here and there when he's beating down serial killer possessed animatronics, but he doesn't answer any questions or trade pleasantries. A Quiet Cage is probably a turnoff to some, but the silence isn't a hindrance here. If anything, it makes Willy's Wonderland much funnier. There aren't a lot of human characters in the movie. There's Cage, a mechanic, the Wonderland owner, some cops, and a gaggle of teens. That sounds like a decent amount of characters, but the only ones that aren't grating are Cage and the lead teen. The mechanic and Texan Fun Zone owner should be quirky character actors, but it appears most of the budget for acting went to Cage and Beth Grant. You might not know who Beth Grant is by name. Picture a typecast actor who is almost always playing a shrill, mean, overprotective mom. If that's not enough, I'll also throw in commitment and sparkle motion. Beth Grant is hilarious as the strange mother character she always plays, but she didn't work as the adoptive mom cop of a girl whose parents were killed in Willie's. What exactly is going on with Willie's Wonderland? Well, you see, a serial killer started a place and hired his serial killer friends as co-workers. They killed families there, and once the jig was up, instead of going to jail, they all participated in a satanic ritual suicide that put their souls into the Wonderland's animatronics. Killers gotta kill, so they continued to murder people in the town until some townsfolk made a deal with the killers to provide them sacrifices in exchange for no more town attacks. There's a whole exposition dump that explains the situation, and the backstory and flashback that shows it is a lot of fun. The best parts of Willy's Wonderland are easily Cage cleaning the place and the flashback. Cage cleaning the place? Is Cage fighting the animatronics considered cleaning? No. The battles between Cage and the serial killer possessed machines aren't all that exciting. There are bits and pieces of the kerfuffles that work, but overall the fight sequences are poorly cut together and have some of the worst sound design you'll ever hear. The cuts and sound effects stop the fights from having any oomph. Cage beating animatronics to death shouldn't lack impact and bore the audience, but they do. The gaggle of teens don't do anything for the movie. The characters are either unlikable or bland. The teens know exactly what happens at Willy's, so their actions once they end up stuck inside the building are mind-numbingly stupid. Why would they get high when attempting to burn the building down? Why would they split up once they end up inside? Why would two of them decide that now is the time to get frisky? The teen character choices are baffling. The teens are only included to pad the body count. 
That would be fine if the gore was decent. 90% of the gore effects are lazy and dull. Half the time blood doesn't even splatter in the right direction. You'd expect a movie about killer animatronics to have some zany, practical gore effects. Willy's Wonderland does not push the gore enough. What almost makes up for the lack of decent gore are the fantastic character costumes. Willy and his pals are varied and fun to look at. The main song they sing about it being your birthday and that they want you to have fun is catchy and great. The movie is far from a technical masterpiece besides the editing and sound design issues. The wrong lens was used for multiple shots that distorted characters standing on the edges of the frame. Still, if you're just looking for a Nick Cage movie where a silent cage hams it up, you'll end up having a decent time with Willy's Wonderland. Number 4, Tentacles 2021, directed by Clara Aronovich. A girl named Tara is running from something. She shacks up with a guy named Sam. Weird stuff starts happening and Sam starts getting sick. Sam finds out that Tara is running from her ex, Grant. Tara used to go by Lena. Tara left Grant for a girl named Alice and they stole his savings. Tara kills Grant. Sam finds out that Tara is dead and whatever Alice is has taken over her life. Alice Tara, who's some kind of shape-shifting tentacle monster, takes Sam's form and kills Sam and his friend. Alice Tara is then found by another tentacle monster. They probably live happily ever after with each other. The tentacle monster is the killer. I never thought I'd be happy to say this, but who larks back, baby? That's Hulu Into the Dark, the monthly Hulu horror movie series that's movies range from absolute trash to mildly enjoyable. Where does tentacles fall on the spectrum? It's closer to mildly enjoyable than absolute trash. Tentacles is a decently put together movie with a predictable plot. Is it easy to figure out that Terra is some kind of shape-shifting creature that's taking over lives? Yeah. Tentacles isn't a movie filled with mysterious intrigue. It's a movie where early on you'll think to yourself, This girl is some kind of squid octopus monster that's ruining people's lives, isn't she? Hey Sam, I ink you should see this. Get it? During Hulark's absence, Amazon and Blumhouse put out some faux Hulark movies. I haven't watched any of those yet, since having four movies dumped in the same month was a bit much for me, and I have no obligation to watch bad movies that aren't explicitly Hulark movies. Watching Hulark has become some sort of ritual. Sometimes it's a self-harming ritual. But even when the movies are bad, they're usually accidentally comedic in some capacity. Since Tentacles is on the better side of the bunch, it doesn't have too many unintentionally hilarious moments. The acting from the two leads is solid enough, but they both have at least one scene where an attempt at acting angry is funny. Sam's is easiest to point out. He jams a Q-tip all the way into his ear like some heathen who can't read the box. 
and in a shocked anger, question what's going on when he pulls it out to find blood. It's really funny. More characters than expected popped up in Tentacles, seeing as how it's the first in the Hulark series to come out post-COVID outbreak, I was assuming the cast would be abnormally small. A lot of Hulark movies in the past had very few people in them already, so it wouldn't have been out of place for Tentacles to try and tell a story with three to five characters. But the movie has a normal amount of actors in it. There's a scene with a busy bar and another with an art gallery. A lot of the shape-shifting effects work. It's fun to watch Tara morph into Sam. The CGI tentacle reveal didn't look the best, but once the tentacles aren't front and center, they end up looking a lot better. There isn't much gore in tentacles. There's some blood from Tara bludgeoning Grant to death, but the assault is off-screen. One of Sam's friends is also stabbed in the gut, but that's really the extent of the gore. Even though Tentacles is decent as far as Hulu Into the Dark installments go, it's not really worth checking out unless you have also made the foolish decision to complete the series no matter what is put out. If you're looking for a similar movie that's much more interesting and, well, maybe not all that similar, check out The Lure. It's a Polish musical mermaid horror movie. Hulark isn't done just yet. At least one more movie is being released next month. It's called Blood Moon, and the holiday it covers is the Spring Full Moon. I'm not seeing a plot synopsis just yet, but I'm hoping that it doesn't end up being a by-the-books werewolf movie. Number 5, No Escape 2020, directed by Will Wernick. A stupid social media influencer named Colin goes to Russia to participate in one of the most intense escape rooms of all time. After escaping, Colin beats Alexei, the guy that created the escape room, to death. Colin is the killer. Wait, what? That's the shortest summary ever. Surely something must have happened that made Colin want to kill Alexei. I mean... The escape room did make it seem like all of Colin's friends were brutally murdered, but he wanted the most intense experience ever. It's not Alexi's fault Colin's feeble influencer brain couldn't handle all the trauma. No escape really should have made Colin more unlikable. He's a cringe-worthy social media influencer, but he's not a bad person. He actually cares about his friends and tries to go back to save them when he thinks they're in trouble. He says some dumb things, but he's never outright malicious. Colin being a stand-up character does make the ending hit harder, though, since this lovable guy, to some people, is now a murderer. The murder is partially Alexei's fault. Of course Colin is going to perform an all-out assault on anyone he sees that he thinks is trying to kill him after what he's been put through, his friends should have been the ones to greet him. Then he would have just been traumatized instead of a super traumatized murderer. The acting in No Escape is bad. Funnily enough, the worst actor by far is Keegan Allen, who played the lead call-in and reacts to any situation with the same cadence and tone. Free extra fries in the bottom of your bag? 
Oh, sweet. French fries. They're free. Girlfriend has a gun to her head? Oh, no. My girlfriend's got a gun to her head. His performance does make the movie much funnier, which is necessary given how bland the plot is. No Escape is a combination of Saw and Hostel. It doesn't include the gore levels of those series or the puzzle intricacies. It's like Saw and Hostel were two saltine crackers that No Escape broke into halves and combined in a bowl of water. No Escape is bland and soggy. There are some decent practical gore effects, like when one of Colin's friends has her neck slit, but that's about as good as the gore gets. Most of the other gore is done off screen. I get that this was probably done since it's hard to explain someone's eye being ripped from its socket as fake in a movie like this, but the viewer is already suspending their disbelief quite a bit. The twist is rather obvious. It was called as soon as the rando Ruskies roughed up Colin's friends at the nightclub. These scary looking dudes are obviously in on it. There's one point where it seems that Colin might have just been kidnapped for real when Alexi kills a driver that assisted Colin since that execution is done in a way where Colin shouldn't have seen it. But Alexi and his team must have had cameras on Colin the whole time. There are no likable characters in No Escape. Colin, his friends, and his girlfriend are all void of any real emotion. Having them all together almost makes one decent character, so it's extra rough towards the end when the only character left is Colin. There's nothing exciting about Colin sneaking around desolate hallways with a dumb look on his face. At one point, Colin comes into ownership of a revolver. The only problem is the fact that it's blatantly made out of plastic. There were much better looking prop guns in the movie, so it's puzzling that Colin was given a plastic toy that was hastily painted gray. He could have put a bullet in the other guns, too. Revolvers are the coolest pistols, though. There's no arguing that fact. They're a little less cool when they're made out of plastic though. No Escape is a bland cash grab that's never bad enough to be hilarious or good enough to be solidly entertaining. Your time is better spent on any of the Saw movies, probably. I haven't seen all of them. I know I've seen 1, 2, and 7. I've seen 7? I must have been dragged to the theater for that one since Saw jumped the shark early on in its run. Number 6, Bloody Hell 2020, directed by Alistair Grierson. A man named Rex stops a bank robbery. During his intervention, a woman is killed. Rex goes to prison for 8 years. Once out, he heads to Finland. He's captured by a psychotic family that feeds people to one of their sons. The daughter of the family, Alia, doesn't agree with what her family does. She helps Rex get loose. Rex then kills the entire family except Alia and her younger brother, Ollie. Rex and Alia live happily ever after, and Ollie wants to eat Americans. Alia's family and a bank robber are the killers. Rex shoots a bank robber who falls over and fires his gun into a cabinet where a woman was hiding. I'm not blaming Rex for that woman's death. Sure, he didn't have to shoot the bank robber in the genitals, 
But the bank robber and his friends put the woman's death in motion by deciding to commit armed robbery. The first 15 minutes of Bloody Hell includes a bunch of jarring cuts and camera work. Style is appreciated when it's done well, but Bloody Hell overindulges quite a bit before Rex makes it to Finland. Once in Finland, the style reels itself in, and it's much easier to follow what's going on. A main component of the movie is that Rex literally talks to himself. There's two of him. This isn't a unique concept, but it's done well in Bloody Hell. Without it, it would have been much less cinematic watching Rex plan his escape from the Helsinki basement. Ben O'Toole played Rex and does a solid job of playing the character times two. The conversations between himself never seem off. Kudos to the editing for making the double Rex interactions seamless. All of the acting was solid. Bloody Hell is an Australian-British film. All of the Finnish people were played by Australians. I'm assuming that actual people from Finland will say the language was butchered in Bloody Hell, but as someone who's not familiar with it, all of it sounded fine to me. Meg Fraser played Alia, and her accent was believable to me, at least. She does a fine job as the black sheep of the family that's not a fan of all the murder and cannibalism. The pacing in Bloody Hell is strange. Even though having Rex talk to himself is represented in an interesting way, a lot of what happens in the basement drags on. It's odd that Alia doesn't help free Rex after she goes down to the basement a second time. Instead of putting a plan into motion, Alia dumps exposition that doesn't end up adding much to the story. Once it's finally time to start dispatching family members, it's possible to blink and miss the deaths of the majority of the family. One simple kitchen ambush kills everyone but the giant monster brother. Big ol' cannibal bro is built up throughout the movie to be a literal house-shaking giant. After all the build-up, it was practically impossible for his on-screen debut to live up to the hype. Monster bro's appearance is disappointing. He's just a big-ish man in a diaper with a little bit of special effects makeup on his face and body. He's not the gargantuan flesh fiend that was needed to knock the climax out of the park. His lackluster design would likely have been sufficient if it had taken more time and set pieces to take care of the rest of the family. The gore in Bloody Hell is practical. Some of it looked solid like the nail gun trauma and severed leg. The gunshots during the stopping of the banked heist left something to be desired. A shotgun shot a robber took to the stomach didn't sell at all since no entry wound was even attempted on the front of the person. Bloody Hell feels like a movie that should have a better handle on its gore effects. It ends up not being all that bloody. For the most part, Bloody Hell is humorous but not a laugh riot. To give an idea of the comedy levels, a lot of the humor stems from a golf club leg. Bloody Hell is an entertaining enough horror comedy. It's not the best, it's not the worst, but it'll keep your attention. Consider checking it out if you liked what you heard about it. Turns out the two twin characters were played by one guy. They do a great job having one person play two in this. Number 7 Life 
Life has been pretty spooky recently. What started as a magical night of actual snow in Texas led to power outages, dangerous roads, and a lack of water. I myself have been pretty lucky and only ended up having to endure rolling blackouts and a trip to the ER. Yet my body decided that the best time to exhibit signs of a possible stroke would be when all the roads were iced over and dangerous. Luckily, my amazing fiancé knows a lot about stuff like stroke symptoms and aphasia, a fancy word for confusion I was suffering, and was able to carefully drive me to the ER where I instantly did some blood tests and CT scans that couldn't deduce what happened exactly. The doctor said it was probably a migraine, but could have been a type of stroke that doesn't cause damage but is a warning sign called a TIA that can lead to a big, bad stroke. It's fun not knowing if what happened to me was a migraine or something much worse, but obviously I'm going to the neurologist as soon as post-freeze Texas allows it. It only cost me $1,600 for the doctor to tell me IDK and I have insurance. That's right, listeners. The United States healthcare system is truly the most frightening thing. Well, that in the U.S. is hard on for capitalism that caused the crisis in Texas, which led to death and despair. I know it was mostly Texas's capitalistic greed, but hey, the whole country is built on it. Well, sometimes you gotta get real and vent about what's going on. Hopefully it was a migraine. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 91, Demon Tech, Squid Love, and Kidnapping Abroad. If you liked what I put in your ears, consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. The next episode will be out on March 7th. Until then, remember to take breaks while completing tasks in a deadly work environment. A quick refreshment could save your life, or at least lead to a goofy pinball machine dance.